modern music education is meant to perpetuate a single type of music. It is, you know, in K-12 schools, there are obviously wonderful exceptions to this rule. We perpetuate the cycle of Western ensemble classical music. And that is the only thing we typically train kids to be able to do. And what I've done even before COVID that I've tried to do in my classroom is to show kids that there are a thousand things they can do in music. It's not just conductor. It's not just ensemble performer. You can go to the music industry. You can go and be a composer. You can work at a music nonprofit. You can be a music therapist. And we don't get to teach those things in our classes as much as we should. And so I think just like breaking out of that cycle of expectation that like there is only one way to teach K-12 music. It's liberating to, to free yourself from that perspective. If you consider you're training kids to do a thousand things in music, not just be part of a choir or an orchestra. Welcome to The Choir Baton, a podcast designed to engage with people and stories, ideas, and inspirations stemming from choir. No other art form, no sport, no hobby, no business requires a group of people to execute a communal goal with just their voices. Join me, your host, Beth Philemon, as I interview guests who are singers, teacher conductors, instrumentalists, and community members. Together, we'll ask questions, seek understanding, and share insight from our experiences in life and in choir. Well, Choir Baton, it is my excited pleasure. That sounded weird, but it's my, <laughs> it's my honor. Um, yeah, we'll see if that makes it in the final cut. But I'm stoked to have Mr. Alexander Alberti with me today. Uh, well, hello, Beth. <laughs> I distinctly remember the first time I met Alex Alberti. Do you remember this? Was this orientation? It was. Or no, it was like, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Downtown Raleigh, mm-hmm. 2015. 15. Wow. Wow. Um, 2015, we, yeah. Oh, because was it, oh, it was your first year too there. Correct. We both started at the same time. We had the opportunity to teach together at the same school that Alex still teaches at. And I, um, I left, we are currently under, they are currently under different administration. I just want to make that very clear. Um, it was a big learning experience for both of us. I think being there. Absolutely. It was your second school that you taught at. Correct. Yes. And you were still a young teacher then. (laughs) I don't mean that you're not young now. No. Yeah. Yeah. That was my third year teaching and you know, they were like, hey, you know, w- how would you feel about starting this brand new program from $1,000? And I was like, uh, all right, it's not my first school, so I'm here for anything. And, you know, so I was kind of thrown into that fire in year three of my teaching experience. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, is a story in and of itself. I'm going to see if I can like condense your story and tell me if I hit anything wrong or right. Um, Alexander was, Alberti was born on a, and a very warm July day. I'm kidding. Um, no, but he was <laughs> um, always involved in music, big band guy, percussionist, went to Jordan high school in Durham, um, really great friends from there went to um, 
I was going to try to think of one of the, uh, Western Carolina as a joke because he actually went to Appalachian State and he's a big no. <laughs> probably one of the biggest App State fans I've ever met. Oh man, if you had said Western, I'd be like, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, they all those schools run together in my brain. So yes, App yeah. State, where you were music education, education, mm-hmm. yes, but you were also not only big into music theory, but also really big into acapella. Correct. And yeah, I um, I joined the men's glee club at App, and it was a non-auditioned ensemble, and I'd never formally sung in a group oral setting before that point. And then they had a little acapella group, and that kind of propelled me into liking vocal music as well as instrumental. Liking vocal music better. I mean, I'm biased. No, you, you do a great job <laughs> of balancing both. Um, from when you graduated that degree, you moved, took a, took a gig teaching high school band and left that to go and teach at the school we met at Longleaf where you teach like so Alex literally started an instrumental program from literally nothing and um the interesting thing about our school is that or their his school is that the majority of students don't even though it's an um air quoting this if you're not watching this it's an arts uh charter school the majority of the students have no background in te- in learning instrumental music that's absolutely correct and you know when i when i had, my first school i taught at was a title one school and there wasn't a lot of training for when kids got to me and so i was thinking to myself when i got to longleaf that oh like this is going to be so much easier and like you know, I think we romanticize our, I mean, I don't know, I, I forget about your high school experience particularly, but like, I think we romanticize our high school experiences. We probably came from very high performing high school experiences and we wanted to replicate that. And so I was thinking, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be that awesome, high performing, easy, like I'm going to rehearse. I don't have to teach. I'm going to rehearse my kids. And that was not the situation. Um, and it still is not the situation at my current school. I think that's an important caveat to include. And one of the many reasons why I love you is because, I mean, that's a real statement. Not many band teachers, especially or instrumental teachers would also say that, oh, I've taught at this school for X amount of years. And it's still at that level because, you know, you can only take beginners so far in four years, particularly Mm -hmm. when there's not a feeder at all set up for you. And there's still not. Accurate, a thousand percent accurate. So like the situation never perchance gets better. So like no matter how much work I put in over those four years, I have those kids, I'm still receiving the same base of students. And so my mindset had to change a lot when I took that position about what my role would be as the um, instrumental teacher um, in my position. Right. And, and that's one of the reasons why Alex is on the podcast now. You know, I, I have uh, these friends that I, I know I, at some point, like it's going to be the right time to bring them on. I, I try, I don't bring people on just to bring them on. Like I always feel like there's something led to that. And Alex and I were talking with uh, another friend of our, a couple of friends of ours recently and got into the debate of the fact that you know, like there is still work to be done. We, our standards cover such a large um, spectrum of things. And it's not like, because we can't hold live performances in person that we're missing the opportunity to work on a lot of our standards. So that's the core of what, you know, Alex is here to talk about. 
But before we get there, can we dive a bit more into some other Alex things that I love? Yeah, please. <laughs> All right. Um, so another great thing that Alex represents is this multifaceted musicianship, not just in his love and passion of instrumental music um, and choral music, but also acapella, but then also psychology too. Correct. Would you share with us a little bit about all of that? Yeah. So when I left high school, I was like, I'm going to be a band director. That's what I want to do. And I applied to AF and I fell in love with the school. Unfortunately, the first time I auditioned to get into the school of music at AF, I did not get in. And so I was like, oh man, like I love this school and I'm going to get into this program, but I'm going to stay here a year and try again. And so when I went to AF, my, my major was actually going to be psychology had I not gotten into the School of Music. I did get into the School of Music, obviously, but I kept that psychology focus as a minor. And from that point, um, I taught a bunch of social studies and humanities courses. Um, so I've taught humanities at, at, uh, at Southern Lee, my first school. I taught cognitive development at Longleaf. AP psychology at Longleaf, and most recently the psychology and philosophy of music at Longleaf. So that's also a really big passion of mine that came out of um, kind of like a plan B, but that I absolutely love. And I could not imagine teaching music or teaching anything without a component of psychology now without that. It's a part of this news like series thought I have coming. It's like um, music and, right? We are not just um in this one musical bubble and existing within that it's always music and other things that mm -hmm. really balance the musicianship i think and i love that you brought up the story about your audition yeah because a how many band directors do you know that will say i didn't get in the first time but b you use that as such a great teaching moment with all your singers or students i mean yeah, correct. I mean, I let them know because, you know, I, I have students get very discouraged if, you know, they don't get into X ensemble or they don't get into, you know, Y school. And I just say, like, I want you to know that, like, your band director did not get into the School of Music the first time. And, like, um, it doesn't mean anything. It just means you have a you learn from that experience. Like, I got to app and I started taking lessons from a, from percussionists there. And I was like, wow, the things I don't know that I get to know now. So you can learn from those failure experiences and propel yourself into better things. So like you shouldn't be ashamed of those negative experiences in your life because you, you honestly can learn from that recuperation. Right. Right. I, I just think that's, I'm going to start to say, I love that because I know I always say that in the podcast and someone called me out on it recently, Matt Myers saying like oh yeah yeah you always say that and I was like yeah thanks but it's true I do love it okay I'm a lover um but it is it's just so indicative I think of also that growth mindset and such that you are such a strong strong believer in which then relates to the relationship that we have had because we worked so closely together we shared a room and y'all when I say like a room I mean like you most of you have living rooms probably bigger than the room that we shared <laughs> yes <laughs> and it worked really well and when it didn't I was always very vocal about saying I need some space absolutely and I was like I got you yeah I'll go to my other like seven rooms I was assigned to <laughs> 
Oh, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, we could tell you some many, many a stories, but I want to say that, you know, your friendship was so sustaining for me because um, we really were collaborators in the musicians that we were building together. And that's so special. I absolutely agree. It was, and what I actually remember really loving too, was like when I was like in my little office in the corner of, of the room and I got to watch you teach, I, I just learned so much just sitting there watching you. So like being forced into those you know, that, that environment did have a lot of perks and in, in growing our friendship and also growing with you as a music professional. Thank you. One of the things I love too, that I also learned from you in that period was um, quite frankly, how open you were with who you were um, as a gay man. And I think mm -hmm. that is um, just something that you don't see I didn't see a lot of teachers when I was growing up and I don't know about you. And I know part of it was the school we were at was very open about that kind of stuff, but you just very much so authentically lived that for you. And I think that's really important for us to share because we both know people that are in situations where they can't be that Absolutely. open. Yeah, I mean, that was my first job. My first job was in a very rural place. And, you know, the, the advice that I was given from day one was like, you are a teacher at school and that is all you are. And if people try to pry into who you are outside of school, you draw that boundary and you don't share. So I, li I lived in fear of being authentic with who I was my first two years teaching. And so getting the job at Longleaf, I was like, I don't have time. Like I can't. And so it was kind of like a, like a rebellion against my first years of teaching where I was like, I'm just going to be me. And it was so nice to just be my, I didn't have to like wave it around, you know, I just got to be it. And everyone was like, okay. Like it, it was just, when you get to authentically just be yourself, like it's surprising how many people are like, awesome. Okay. And you know, there's no fanfare. It's just support and love. Yeah. And that's what I, I appreciated about that movement into my new school. Yeah. What advice would you have for a young teacher moving into a setting where they are nervous about being themselves in regards to, um, you know, I'm not saying they have to like run up and down a hallway and say, you know, like any, any one of the things it doesn't even have to be about sexuality in that way, but um, that are struggling with how to balance all of that. Absolutely. I mean, I am always going to advocate for authenticity because when you're not able to be authentic and when you're scared of being authentic, it truly does interfere with your teaching. Like, and by no means was I trying to interject my identity, so to speak, into my teaching at my first school. But that anxiety always kind of hangs over you because, you know, if we're going to talk about sexuality in this particular instance, it's like I had to code switch. I had to be more masculine. I had to worry about if I had a, like if I got a call from my partner at the time, if I was around staff members who are adults that I was like talking, like I had to be so anxious all the time. And so if I'm speaking to a new and young teacher, I would say, liberate yourself from that anxiety and just be yourself. Right. Um, obviously be safe and be smart with your surroundings and environment. Like always make sure you're, you're not putting yourself in danger, but if that's okay, then like absolutely be yourself because not only will you appreciate it, your kids are going to appreciate it because they're going to see themselves in their, you know, mentors. And that's really important for 
for a kid of any identity to see themselves represented by the staff. Yeah, I, I love that because even to your point, important for students to see adults living authentically for myself, right? Like as a female and as a straight female to be encouraged by a male and a gay male living authentically, like there is power in seeing someone that looks like you and identifies as you in situations like that. And there's also power in um, seeing that for people that don't look like you and that don't, right. you know, uh, the opportunities to positively influence those that are around us are um, never minimal when we are being truly authentic. Thousand percent correct. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious now, let's talk, thinking through expectations and, and you go to Longleaf and you think like, this is it, you know, I know the promises that were given to me when we got there and when I got there um, and coming to terms with the reality of the situation for someone also that is as positive as you are, um, how did you process all of it? Yeah. So, you know, I, again, I, it was kind of like a little bit of a rebellion. So I left my first school where it was like pulling teeth to get anything really musical out of the kids. They did it. And I, it was amazing, but like, it was like pulling teeth. And so I get to this new school and I'm thinking, wow, there's this huge opportunity. My first year I had one actual band class. And by that it was a group of people randomly put together that were strings and piano players and guitar players and percussionists. And I was like, all right, we're gonna make this work. Like we're gonna build a foundation. And like over a couple of years, like we're gonna build it up. It's gonna be great. Like I wanna go to MPA. I wanna play grade six music. I wanna get like, I can finally do all these things. And years go by and years go by and I build my program and it grows and I learn how to differentiate it. And then I'm thinking to myself like, you know, like wave after wave, these kids I'm getting, like they're not, you know, if you think about like the, you know, an ideal way of, of, of progression in music in middle school, your kids go to grade one, grade two, grade three. So by eighth grade, they have conquered grade three-ish music. And by the time they get to you, they're able to play low grade three or, or grade four or whatever. I was getting kids with absolutely no experience. And because our school is small, um, there were not a lot of bodies in the seats. If I, were ex if I was going to expect that, I was not going to get those bodies in the seats. And so I thought to myself, I have to shed myself of this these should statements like, well, I should be playing grade six now. I should have a wind ensemble that can do this. Or I, you know, I had to let that stuff go and go, well, what is right for this setting? What do these kids need? Um, and how can I get that for them? And so I had to abandon all of those expectations that I had set for myself. And, and that's an ego thing. I had to shed that ego um, because I was so worried about being perceived as like a bad director because my kids struggle with grade four, but like, who cares? I had to like adopt that mindset and go, if I want my kids to learn music, I have to meet them where they are. So like I started taking brand new players. I created concert band at Longleaf and separated it from wind ensemble and kids in concert band were basically sixth graders. And you know what? Great. Because I got an influx of kids who would were always told at their other schools, you can't start band in high school. And so I got to get those kids and I got to teach them about, it. and I had kids who started in, in ninth grade and then went off and went to college for music after four years of, of high school teaching. So like, 
you know, just shedding that ego, shedding those expectations helped me make my program successful for that program. Right. Right. How did you reckon that in a performance aspect as well too, right? I, I, there's a process to even admitting it to yourself at the beginning of the semester when you're looking for repertoire and you're like, and it's not going to be a grade six. It's got to be this. And, and I think that's an acceptable place for us and uh, to all come to within the confines of our classroom. But then putting it out there for others is terrifying too. Absolutely. So, you know, I, every year it was evaluating, you know, what are the strengths of each section? Where are the gaps? And what I also did is I had to be creative. So I did not put pressure on myself to go to MPA. And that is really the most public thing I probably could right. have done is because those grades are published, right? right? So colleagues will look at those grades and unfortunately they will make judgments. So right. I was in, and, in the state of North Carolina, MPA is music performance adjudication, which is like a festival or, you know, anything else like that in other states. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I picked out literature that I knew was going to be a cheap, like, in that zone of proximal development, if we're talking Vygotsky, right? So like, you know, so- it, Oh, Vygotsky, I love him. You know, so like just hard enough to challenge them, but you know, within their accessibility. And when it came time for concerts, I was like, well, how can I make this a better performance experience for the students and the audience? And I reached out to friends and college students and fraternity brothers and staff members at my school. And I had community members come in and sit in and play with our, with my kids. So my little 16 person wind ensemble grew to like 25 for one evening. And they got to network with professional players or with college students and laugh and get to know people. And like the concert sounded better and like you learn to adjust. And so when I was picking literature, I was like, okay, I can find a flute player to double this if I need to when the time comes. So that's kind of how I had to learn to be creative in that way and temper my expectations and, and find ways to make performance better for my students. Right. It is a really magical thing as well to sit in the audience and to see that happen for these students as well. Um, it's just it's just really cool. And I think it's also neat for the players that you have brought in uh, for them to also be like the big man's on campus. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. And they get to be the experts and not all of those players are full-time musicians. Some of them mm -hmm. are teachers themselves. Right. And um, it's, I just cannot stress how amazing it is to watch those performances. So that same kind of mindset, right, of uh, this is the reality. This is where I'm at. This, these are not my expectations. These are not my plans. How do I make this work? Every teacher in America has had to do that in the last year, but particularly every music educator. And right. what has this year been like for you as a music educator? So what I'm going to say is probably very different than what most people say. Um, but honestly, this past year has been one of the least stressful years of my life. Wait, wait, um, we got to get everyone, when you say that, everyone, like, you need to put a little jack in your coffee if you're drinking coffee or, like, go grab the bottle of wine. And I'm kidding, but yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. Because you might want to punch him at this point. Don't hit stop here. No, but it's, it's, I love it. It's so good. Keep going. So, you know, 
being in the situation we just described, performance anxiety with my kids is very real. You know, knowing that at the end of every quarter or every semester, I have to overcome 30 million obstacles to put on a public facing performance of some type. Um, I did go to MPA. So (laughs) I went to MPA two years ago, I think like the spring of 2019. And my kids got excellent and then a superior in sight reading. So I was like, okay, great. We've, we've ripped that bandaid off. We've gone to MPA. Like that's what we could do. And they went grade three. Love it. Um, so then the next year was that spring was COVID, the onset of COVID 2020. And so we were preparing for MPA and the stress was, I was like, oh my gosh, like things are not coming together. Like the week before MPA, we go into quarantine and that gets canceled. And I, I have to tell you how relieved I was. And what that kind of domino effect was, is I was like, okay, so there's no wind. There's, there's not going to be a spring concert. You know, we're not going to do a May concert. So, all right. Like, like, what do I get to teach now? Like, I don't have to teach these pieces anymore. What right? do I get to teach? I don't have to do this. Right. So, you know, there's that expectation because again, it's like what we are all used to, what our high school directors did, what our college directors did. It was, you get everyone together, you put them in an ensemble, you talk about certain rehearsal concepts and certain musical concepts as the literature applies. And then you put a concert on and that's like what the director does. And suddenly I was faced with this thing where I was like, oh man, like I have to completely reinvent the way I'm going to teach when like, that's okay. Like there's, a thousand other standards that like I am forced to have to like scramble to put together in normal years but this year I can take my time and so like we finished out the year and it was fine and then this new year we've been virtual the entire time um and like I don't have to get up hours early I wake up I make myself coffee I make myself breakfast I'm not splurging hundreds of dollars on fast food breakfast anymore or coffee even though I miss getting coffee with you every morning. Um, uh, I, can, I can take my time planning. And then I get to teach musical concepts, both relevant to performance and culture. And like, I'm not, like, I'm not you know, b- back in March, everybody was like, well, we need virtual choirs. We have to do virtual choirs right now. We have to do virtual choirs. And I was like, oh man, like, am I going to be expected to put one of these together? Um, I'm in a semi-professional acapella group and we did a virtual choir. It was a two- minute and like 50 second song and there was 10 people in it and it took me over a week just to do that and I was like this is ridiculous and to be honest most people look at those virtual choir videos they go oh that was really cool and they keep scrolling and there was this obsession with making virtual choir videos because people were trying to take the the round peg from last year and shove it into the triangle hole of this year and it, it doesn't work it's not going to work that way. And so I kind of shed myself of that, of that expectation that I had to make a a performance ensemble video. You know what, this year we're focusing on individual performance skills. This year we're focusing on cultural practices and music around the world. This year we're going to learn music tech skills. Like my kids made little multi-track videos using the acapella app and um, using the other one, the browser-based one that I'm forgetting. Flat.io, Soundtrap. Uh, no, it's, it's like a, so a video it's a, thing. It's a multi-track video one. Cause oh, like you can do an okay. acapella app. Either way, 
they, yep. they learned how to do that. Um, tomorrow I'm having my, my, my concert band kids compose things like a four measure melody for the first time ever and perform it. Like I get to be creative this year and I don't have any expectations weighing down on me besides just getting to relax for once and teach all parts of music, not just stress out about my concerts. Right. I bet there are more teachers that feel the same as you do that are quite maybe a little scared to speak up. Um, and I get that as well. I, it's a big mix of everything. Um, one thing that I think will people listening need to understand, and you can also help shed light on uh, a Longleaf is fortunate in that every student has a digital device. Now I don't, and that's part Longleaf is a charter school. So a charter school in North Carolina is a public school. Um, but there are ways for students to be able to get uh, device if they need it. I don't know how reliable internet access has been for all of your students at home. Has that been a problem? I honestly haven't really noticed it much. Um, there's like maybe like a very small handful of kids that have kind of had intermittent issues, but um, not prohibitively so. Right, right. Um, and, and so then the biggest factor that I, I think you can shed a lot of light on it for us is the the nerves and the fear. Teachers everywhere have had students filled with anxiety and listening to themselves individually perform and rehearse and all that kind of stuff. I have no doubt the Longleaf students have um, also been privy to that um, luxury, I air quote luxury. How have you navigated that? So it, it's it, a lot of it is just understanding that you have to be flexible as a teacher. So um, for example, I assign, so what I thought would be a less anxiety provoking thing um, for a, a particular playing assessment was that they would record a video of themselves playing this little excerpt. They can do it as many times as they want to. They're not being watched actively. Like I figured way less stressful. I get a very panicked phone call from a mom or at first an email, then a call. And she's like, you know, my student cannot like she is completely frozen with anxiety trying to make this video and i was like what about zoom will zoom work and she's like yeah i prefer zoom i was like okay and so i just you know you adapt the assignment for the student and then we did it over zoom and any other playing assessment the student has to take we just do it over zoom um what's nice about again this virtual setting is that i get to meet my students more where they are because again, we can slow the pace down and there's more flexibility in the way that um, I get to interact with the students. So, um, you know, the reverse has happened where kids don't like doing it live so they can send a recording in, like just being flexible with your kids has really helped with a lot of that internet anxiety or technology anxiety, performance anxiety, because I also do ask my kids to play in front of the class over Zoom or sight sing and AP music theory over Zoom. And little by little, I think kids have slowly started to adjust to the new environment and it's not so bad at this point. Right. That's awesome. And I think, you know, it's, it's all a process. It's not a one day thing. It's listening, tweaking, giving feedback. And that's what you're so good at as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. What are some assignments that you have brought that you have just like totally dug that are new, that are filling in th those other standards that um, we often bypass? 
Yeah, so one of my favorite ones that I've just recently done, uh, I mentioned it a little earlier, was I was just like, I want you to find a non-traditionally classical Western cultural practice of music. I want one that you're interested in. Maybe it's your background. I, I have a student who's Greek and, and she picked traditional Greek music. Um, and I want you to research the culture. I want you to research how music is a part of that culture, what that music sounds like, how it's different from American music. You know, compare these cultures and traditions and talk about how that music is used. And students had to either write an essay or they can make a podcast video or audio. And like, I learned so much from my kids, like from just listening to their podcasts and reading their essays. Like we had one student do an essay or a video podcast on the hang which is like a, like a hand pan. Um, and it was like so well done. And so that student not only got to research another culture, learn about another practice, but also like practice production um, things, like how to create a podcast and edit audio. Like it was awesome. And so I was just sitting there watching and listening to these projects, like blown away by how much I was learning too and how much I know they learned. Um, before every holiday, I've had students, um, we, so like before Halloween this year, students had to research the interplay between um, horror soundtracks and horror movies or like Halloween movies. So like the kids weren't so privy to like horror or thriller, they could do like the Nightmare Before Christmas or whatever, you know what I mean? Right. Um, I had my wind ensemble do, they had, to comp they had to research, there was a great YouTube video about how horror soundtracks are composed. And I was like, I want you to create a 30 second horror soundtrack using whatever audio means you'd like to do. And so these kids were doing these really awesome like horror soundtrack compositions. And they had to like give me a brief description about like, what, what would you, like, what is this music scoring? Let's describe the scene that this music would be under. And so they got to learn like composition skills and like, they use like found instruments and like they were making weird noises in their kitchens. Like it was so fun. Um, and so those are some of the assignments that I really liked this year that I got to do. How have you seen your students grow musically over this period? Yeah, there's a lot more emphasis on personal responsibility. So um, when you're in an ensemble setting, it's very easy to kind of get lost in the sauce. Like if you miss a measure, it's no big. If you miss an entire line, you're gonna get a glare from me, but it typically can go, you know, unnoticed in, in the texture of the music. But this year, when the assignments are all very individual, suddenly students are like stepping up a lot. And what's great is I get to focus on fundamentals this year instead of, you know, um, jamming rehearsal and literature down their throats. So like, we're doing a lot of like warm up fundamental books. And so kids have playing tests on fundamentals and like, they can't just, air play the the, the warm-ups anymore they have to actually record them for me and um so kids are getting responsibility that way um i have used again like the acapella app there was this really great um flexible instrumentation piece put out um, by brian balmages where it's like super flexible four-part kind of a fun minimalist piece and so kids broke into groups and they had to record those and what that means is they are responsible for their line that one student so the amount of confidence students had to develop this year in doing something as simple as like recording 30 seconds of a piece with just them on their part grew their abilities a lot so i've just seen that accountability and that personal achievement grow so much more than i think ensemble rehearsal 24 7 always allows if that makes sense 
thousand percent, a thousand percent. I think it's so easy for us to uh, fall into the group, right? Particularly those of us that love music making for the fact that it is a, a group effort. Um, we oftentimes are extra mindful of not overpowering or being sensitive to listening around us or, oh, you know, so-and-so next to me can sing that better. I'm going to pull back. And when we do that, we don't lean into our personal possibilities and gone are those days. Absolutely. And, and one thing that I want to also emphasize that I feel like I've seen talked about so much online and like in forums with other music educators is again there's that panic of well these kids are going to fall behind and like this year you know like they're they're trying to recreate all these things that they would typically get because the kids are missing out and what I remember like what I think about every day is that this is temporary this is not forever Mm -hmm. um our kids are going to play together again and they're going to sing together again and so are we and all of those things are going to be taught like the world, I know it feels like it, but it is not ending. Right. And education is not gonna suddenly change in a way that's irreparable. So like, I know I'm going to get to teach those ensemble skills that you were discussing or that other people are panicking about like in a year or so, or like next semester, like it's going to happen again. But um, I think there's been this inflexibility in a lot of people where they're, so worried that things are changing irreparably and, and they're not. This is a temporary time in the education system. Right. And that's kind of another thing I've been telling myself. From a psych, there's no doubt like listening to you and, and being knowledgeable about your psychology background, it's easy to see uh, how it can be intertwined. Why, from your experience in learning, like why is it psychologically um, that with this change, we find ourselves so rigid to the inflexibility when also like as musicians, we are flexible, but we like to be flexible and the way we like to be flexible still with our feet dug in the ground. Right. I, I mean, I think a lot of it is, is the kind of cultural norms in the music education world. And, and there's like a functional fixedness in how we approach our jobs because there's so, like we talked about earlier, so much expectation on music educators at all points to create these products. Um, and uh, I think that right now there's this panic because people think that their worth as a music educator is measured in one way. Marching band, concerts, choir performances, on, like they, their job, like there's been norms that that is how their worth is measured. Um, and that's again, just culturally set over many, many, many years in our educational system, preparing music educators. Um, and so I think there's this anxiety to not approach their job in a way they're used to, you know? So I, I think it just comes down to that setting yourself of, of, of the spotlight effect where people think that you're, you're being looked at so harshly all the time when in reality, that's not the case. And so when you kind of shed yourself of that expectation, you free yourself of being stuck in that rigid expectation for yourself. So how then do we find ourselves uh, when we are not able to judge ourselves and judge others by the performances 
that they are doing, I'm sarcastically shaking my head back and forth. If it, what these that are listening, I don't mean this, but I mean, but also then how, like, what's our, what's our new way of finding worth without a concert? I mean, the reason I love teaching is I love getting kids excited about things and kids are not just going to get excited about a performance. They're not just going to get excited about concerts. That is not the only thing kids like to do. Um, I mean, gosh, I have kids who are so into this music tech thing now that I'm like, I'm going to take some of these projects and keep them for future years because like I've suddenly tapped into a kid's interest that like they never knew they had. And like, that gives me worth and purpose is knowing that like I introduced and here's my other thing. I'm going to go another rant here for just one second. Modern music education is meant to perpetuate a single type of music. It is, you know, in K-12 schools, there are obviously wonderful exceptions to this rule. Um, we perpetuate the cycle of Western ensemble classical music. And that is the only thing we typically train kids to be able to do. And what I've done even before COVID that I've tried to do in my classroom is to show kids that there are a thousand things they can do in music. It's not just conductor. It's not just ensemble performer. You can go to the music industry. You can go and be a composer. You can work at a music nonprofit. You can be a music therapist. And we don't get to teach those things in our, our classes as much as we should. Um, and so I think just like breaking out of that cycle of expectation that like there is only one way to teach k-12 music um it's liberating to to free yourself from that perspective if you consider you're training kids to do a thousand things in music not just be part of a choir or an orchestra i mean if that doesn't light a fire under your bottom during this time right i don't know what will on a certain level because i think that's so incredibly valid for us to remember. We, we preach, oh, you can be a, a lifelong musician, a lifelong musician. And we preach that in regards to singing in ensembles. Well, that's not always practical for everyone um, at every point in their life, or even they can still do that. But what if they can be a music therapist or someone mm -hmm. that scores something or, you know, all of the different, the different things. And I mean, it's, it's, it's massive music technology. I mean, huge. I won't listen. I won't watch a super corny lifetime Hallmark Christmas movie. That's like off brand, but you know, you're desperate because you've already watched all of the other ones. I'm saying it's all <laughs> hypothetically, like it doesn't <laughs> ever happen to me. Hypothetically. Um, if I had watched all of those movies and was looking for another one and one comes on and like, you're like, this is just so it's like, it's the same ish as the others, but it's falling flat. Why is it falling? It's because there's no music, right? Like there's no, right. music. I mean, hypothetically, right? Again, as if those videos were to, and I would, uh, you know, happen and see them, but it's true. Like the, the technology that we continue to see utilized through film and video requires music more than ever to be a part of it. And we need to right. do that. Like when you were in high school, like how much were you taught about different career prospects in music when you were in high school? I wasn't. I decided to be a music business major because it would get me to Nashville. It had business in it and it was music. Um, and I thought I could be a music business and not be a teacher and make more money. 
Um, and so that was, that was why I went, but I got to the school and, and actually it's ultimately why I left the degree at the university level, which then we could get on another tyrant about is <laughs> yes. How much is our undergrad or, um, secondary, how much are our secondary schools preparing students to consider careers, but how much are our university and collegiate settings also doing an adequate enough job preparing us for them? And I think they're doing crap too, from personal experience. And some are, are doing well, but I, it's all connected. I agree. I mean, that's one of the great things about this time period is we can, I mean, even not during COVID, a personal philosophy of my kids, every year do a project on music careers. They will do it four times if they had me for four years, every year. Because when I went to college, like my best friend, one downstairs is a music therapist. I had no clue. Now, let me also say, I adore my high school band director. He's my dad. I call him my dad every, you know, I love him to death. But I had no clue that a career like music therapy even existed. He told me he was, he was doing music therapy. I was like, what is that? How did Freddie find out about like, it? I don't, I don't honestly know. He may have just researched it when he was like looking on apps website, but like, like you go into the world, like as a high school kid, you're picking majors and like, you're not like, you don't know what you could do because we again, perpetuate this one track of, of K-12 music most of the time. Um, and so like, I'm using this time to get my kids interested in what their futures could look like so that kids don't just drop music because they think it's a dead end. So this brings up a great point too. And another wonderful idea, uh, actually that, you know, if I had extra time right now, I would totally do. So someone picked this up F flat. This might be, um, if any of y'all, this might be up your alley, but you do a music careers, career fair. Did I say that right? So it is, in previous years, Arts Career Day. And this year it's called the Lifelong Artistry Series. Well, Latida, tell us more <laughs> about it, Mr. Alberti. So in non-plague apocalypse years, I do an event called Arts Career Day and it's one afternoon. And the entire arts department mobilizes at the school to find professionals who use arts in their career in some capacity. So we've had the conductor of the North Carolina Master Corral come. We've had a music and arts retailer come. We've had um, music industry folks come, recording artists, um, recording engineers, graphic designers, neon sign vendors. Like we bring any arts field or even if it's remotely part of it, like advertising for graphic design. Like it's not explicitly art, but but it's art, yeah. People don't re it's art, yeah. So, um, and we bring it and kids do this walkthrough. They, they hear a discussion first from all the different professionals that come in and they walk through and they meet people and they network and they pick up literature. I, I, I ask the professionals to talk about what schools are good for that degree or what like you can do now to prepare for that, that, um, that profession. And they network and they meet everybody. And it's such an amazing day to see kids be like, that's a thing I can do that. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. I can be a comic book artist. I can design magazines. Like there's all these things you can do. Um, but this year, because I can't do a day, cause that's just not um, possible in this setting. Days don't exist I, in education. Correct. Right now. Yeah. I adjusted it to be the series of webinars where I invite professionals, which I would actually love to have you. Um, Tell me when I'm where, here. 
Oh yeah. We, I invite a bunch of people to come give like little half hour, hour long webinars with Q and A's and record them and post them for kids throughout the entire school year. So it's taking arts for your day and stretching it out into a series of webinars instead of one fair. Um, but yeah, that's what I do to get kids kind of hyped about arts careers. <clears throat> I just think, you know, it's just an amazing opportunity that we have for you to also spread that out. Not that there's uh, not power in having that like one day and the synergy of that when we're like all in person, et cetera. But that, that spreading out, um, I don't, I'm sure there's like a psychological fancy word about like it keeps the hormonal happiness going right and so it's not like a peak and valley it's like right, you wait yeah. till the next you know what I mean yeah like it just you know it's not a single burst of inspiration the inspiration keeps going all all year and it keeps the momentum going for kids who are really considering what their next steps are going to be after high school right right I love that so um one last like little tidbit here in closing, because we could easily make this like a four hour conversation, but throughout all of this too, you have been finishing your second degree in music education and nonprofit management as well. Um, what ha what first led you to go that route? Because many educators, once they are in the classroom, look, do I go performance? Do I go conducting? Do I do this? Do I do that? And I know you looked through a lot of that. And then um, what did you learn from that that is most exciting to you? So, yeah, so <clears throat> my, you know, master's degree in music education and it was all online. And so, um, a lot of what I learned in my master's degree that was really helpful was mostly just like, again, like research-based things. Like um, my favorite research-based thing that I learned was that it doesn't matter what type of minor solfege you use, as long as you use the same one for a consistent amount of time. Okay. All right. We're going to go there. <laughs> so uh, you would. <laughs> I know this is going to happen. We have yet one disagreement where the hours we have spent arguing over Dill-based versus law-based minor. There was a thread in the ACDA Facebook page that was like, which minor solfege form do you use? It was like law-based, 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 law-based. I was like, <clears throat> You did not. I did. And people were like, I don't understand, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Which is hysterical because you're the most like non-confrontational person in the entire world, which I can't believe you did that. I mean, maybe I can. I mean, if you want to so passionately believe that you're wrong, I will support you. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the bottom line for me about that is that <laughs> I teach, I teach them all. So I, I do, I allow students to use whatever form of solfege and rhythmic um, solmization they want to use. So for playing tests, for AP theory, like I have a lot of kids who are in chorus who use law-based minor and for any sight singing exam, they are absolutely welcome to use law-based minor. Like I teach both. We've practiced both. Um, we practice Takadimi. We practice numbered counting. Like really the research just says, today. Mm -hmm. teach, teach it consistently, make sure kids find one that, they, that works well for them. And they're going to be successful with it as long as they practice it correctly. So like, that's, that's kind of what I put for the master's degree, but in terms of like the nonprofit management stuff, um, it's, 
it's actually like part of the political science department at UNC Greensboro. And so they're actually really great with like letting tailor that program to be whatever you want it to be. Um, and so I geared it all towards arts and music nonprofits because I am also really well, like heavily involved in NAM um, and the College National, Music Society. National, yeah, National Association of Music Merchants. Music Merchants, that's right. But they, they now just call themselves NAM because it's more than just music merchants, but yes, that's like what it stands for. And then I'm also now the artistic director of the Triangle Pride Band, which is an LGBT wind ensemble and marching band program. And so there were a ton of like management skills that I didn't possess that I really wanted to gain in my degree program. And so I took the certification um, and I've learned things like strategic planning for nonprofit. I've learned budgeting and grant writing and financial management. And gosh, it's been huge for my non K-12 musical endeavors, but also in the classroom, like how to appropriately prospect and write grants as an arts educator is huge. Um, or also just like working with money and budgeting for your program. Like I think all educators in the music, in the music realm could benefit from a nonprofit management class of some type because they don't teach you those things um, with much depth in most degree programs in music education. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a gaping hole that I think has also lended itself to the detriment <clears throat> of a lot of um, music groups. And unfortunately, this time has only exacerbated some of that, I do believe. Um, mm -hmm. So it's an important thing for us to all consider. And, and to your point earlier, right, about careers in the arts is that we need people like this um, that are artistically minded and passionate to be in roles that support the arts in more business, operational, financially competent uh, ways so that we can continue to flourish. Absolutely, a thousand percent agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alex, I, we touched on a ton today and I just want to say thanks first and foremost for coming on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you for having me. It's really fun. Oh, I mean, I've always dreamed about being on this podcast. I've like, really, I've been like, I would love to one day. And so you said that and I was like, I get to be on it. I'm so excited. It's like waiting for, it's waiting for that, like, Watching, like that's what we need to talk about and now is when we need yes. to talk about it um because it's yeah it's really um it's it's really interesting and it's i don't that's the weird thing also about having a podcast is like that balancing line of like it it's also not when i don't have people on it's not like well i don't want to talk to you I, it's it's all about and again, if people don't know, know me and know how I work and you know me and how I work that it's like squirrel, run, catch that squirrel, <laughs> grab another squirrel. Um, I don't think about how to collect all types of, I don't know, that's a weird analogy that I am I'm branching off of. Um, but it has been a, a joy to have you on today. But also I hope that people here in this interview, like the love I have for you 
the love that I feel like we both have for each other and the fact that you can be very blessed with a band colleague and work together. Absolutely. There is no one else in your building that gets what you do unlike your musical instructors, um, although they might use different instruments. And, um, you know, I'm so fortunate and you've always been a proponent, although the wrong way to teach minor based soulfish. Um, (laughs) 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 You've always been such a a proponent of singing and a lover of singing, um, both with your acapella work, um, both Alex and Freddie, when he says he's big in acapella, like he's really big and like loves him some acapella. Um, you are also an accomplished composer, have had works performed by all different ensembles, including the North Carolina Governor's School Eastwind Ensemble, like all the things. Um, but you are someone that just being friends with you um, makes us better people. So thank you. Thank you so much. That's very sweet. And I love you very much. I love you. And if you are listening, I hope that you are so encouraged and excited um, about some of the things Alex talked about, because I think it's incredibly relevant for us to remember, again, that you can tap into all of these different standards that you often bypass can be for the benefit of the students and and to think big picture. And it's scary, um, but his story is a perfect example that you can turn the scary into something incredibly meaning and meaningful and significant. Absolutely. Choir Baton, thanks so much for listening to the Choir Baton podcast. As always, you can find out more information via the link in the bio below. You can check us out. If you are watching us on YouTube, you can check out the audio on all the places that podcasts are streamed and if you're listening to us on a podcast app then you can also check this video out on youtube we'll be posting clips on all the socials and don't hesitate to reach out and share with us what was meaningful and impactful to you you can also follow alex on social all of his things will be linked below as well as mine will be linked below uh, as well and more than anything we hope that you are passionate about more people singing, even online, even amidst this. We currently have a new course just launched, revamped, that's all about planning. And even though it talks about in one um, aspect of it, of of the planning cycle in a performance-based classroom, uh, we talked about what does a performance actually look like, different ways you might augment it. Um, But again, it doesn't have to fit within that traditional standpoint. It's it every sort of career, if you will, has a performing aspect to it. And what you identify as performance is really just that end end goal to show the growth that your students have made with you. So go check out Revamped. Um, It is an awesome course to help you um, revamp in this era that you especially feel is which you are vamping in and don't forget to like us on all the places follow us on all the things and follow Alex.